welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this bonus episode, back by very popular demand, I am joined by specialist dermatologist Dr. Ryan DeCruz, who is here to answer the questions you submitted on dry, irritated winter skin. The last time we spoke to Dr. Ryan, he shared his knowledge on all things isolation skin, skin that is irritated, stressed and acting out. We took Dr. Ryan's advice and we healed our isolation skin. And then winter hit and with it came a whole new list of skin woes. So many listeners and GlowJournal.com readers have reached out to me in recent weeks looking for winter skin salves, products to protect their skin from the winter chill and from artificial heating, and products to heal their sore, dry, irritated skin. As you well know, I am an educated consumer and not an expert, and given how much we all learned from Dr. Ryan last time, I insisted on taking your winter skin questions back to him. In the name of full disclosure, this episode is sponsored by CeraVe. However, as per all of my expert interviews, the guest doctor is never here to push specific brands and products. For this reason, you will hear Dr. DeCruz recommend specific ingredients, things like ceramides, rather than products, giving you the tools you need to make your own educated purchasing decisions. On a personal note, given that the range has been developed with dermatologists, I do use CeraVe myself and largely credit the brand with the fact that my skin has made it through isolation and the cold snap unscathed. For me, CeraVe falls into a category that I'm particularly fussy about, the quote-unquote reset category of non-irritating products that I know my skin loves, that I can use to hit that reset button and restore balance to my skin between trials and will deliver serious, consistent results use after use. Fortunately, Dr. Ryan approves. As you'll hear in this conversation, Dr. DeCruz's non-negotiables for winter skincare are minimalist products that contain skin-identical ceramides to strengthen the skin barrier, hyaluronic acid, and no fragrance. Four boxes that CeraVe has been proven to tick. The range is dedicated to strengthening the skin barrier to create healthy, beautiful-looking skin. It's simple, it delivers, and it is inexpensive. I took to Instagram recently to collate your skin questions. And in this episode, Dr. Ryan discusses all things winter skin, from why our sensitivities are heightened during the colder months and how to deal with dry skin and acne simultaneously, to the ideal shower temperature and why your hyaluronic acid serum might not actually be doing a single thing for your skin. I believe that we touched on this in our isolation skin episode, but I think that it is worth revisiting given the timeliness. Why is it that so many people suffer from dry skin in the winter? 
It's a really good question and absolutely very, very common. I estimate about 60 to 70% of the patients that I see every day of my career have dry skin and potentially even skin conditions that develop from dry skin. And the simple fact is that we live in an incredibly dry climate. So Australia is very far south, we're very isolated. And yes, within parts of Australia, it is quite humid, for example, up north in the Northern Territory and in Queensland, but in the more Southern states like Tassie, Victoria and New South Wales, our winters are very dry. And as a result of that, our skin dries out naturally. Add into that fact, the fact that the temperature drops and even a drop in one or two degrees can be quite significant for people to really feel it. We crank up the heaters, we tend to put lots of layers on and in Melbourne we all know that our uniform is black so we have all of these thick woolen coats, thick scarves and jumpers and all that does is actually dry our skin out more because we actually artificially manipulate our internal environments cranking up the heaters and wearing all these layers. And as a result of that, water just evaporates from our skin like there's no tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So dry skin is very much a winter problem. If you're unlucky enough to have the genes for dry skin anyway, and there are many people who, who know that they were had very dry skin when they were children, that their parents and siblings have dry skin, Gen for genetic reasons, they don't actually hold in moisture as well. As, you know, on top of that. So there are, that's why this time of the year is actually the worst and we see a lot of skin conditions appearing in winter. Well, that sort of brings me to my next question because a lot of our readers and listeners have complained of heightened irritations during the winter. Are those sensitivities linked to dry skin and the weather as well? Yeah, definitely. So what we know is dry skin at a cellular level is a problem with the skin barrier. Mm -hmm. So our skin cells aren't being held together tightly enough we're losing moisture and when we lose water through evaporation, we have a we switch on our inflammatory cascade. So we actually develop inflammation simply through dryness. Mm -hmm. But in addition to the loss of water, we have a lot of irritants entering our skin through these gaps in our skin cells. So irritants can include things like natural fibers from clothing, so our wool and cotton, artificial fibers, of course dusts and pollens so you know especially during isolation everyone's gone cleaning crazy so we're cleaning our houses Big we're cleaning time. our gardens yep all of that is aerosolizing particles then settle on our skin uh, and we're also using a whole lot of harsher chemicals now right so people are you know Woolworths the other day was completely sold out of bleach and cleaning mm. cleaning products because people are really using all of these harsh chemicals on their environment and of course that directly irritates skin as well mm -hmm. so we have this tenant in dermatology that dry skin is itchy skin. It's not only itchy, but it's also very sensitive. So there are quite a few reasons why the skin in this time of the year appears more sensitive. Sort of on the you know harsh chemicals note, this is another thing that we touched on last time, but again, worth revisiting. Yeah. We're using sanitizer now. I yeah. personally have never cared for my hands more than I have in the last couple of months. Absolutely. So hand care does seem to be a priority. What should we be looking for in a hand cream? Yeah, good question. So this this concept of hand sanitizer has really taken off. I think mm. people who've never ever used an alcohol-based hand gel before are now buying it by, you know, the five-letter bottle. Mm -hmm. And we know that it is a very quick and effective way of killing off bacteria, but we also know that it will help dissolve the natural oils in our skin. So the first principle is that, yes, it's an important adjunct to our uh, antibacterial and antiviral defense. But every time we use an alcohol-based hand gel or indeed every time we wash our hands, 
we should also be moisturizing with a lipid replenishing moisturizer. So those that contain ceramides, of course, which we know are the building blocks of the skin, mm-hmm. uh, or particularly the skin cement, but also those that have a, a good or decent amount of liquid paraffin and white soft paraffin. So these the way that I describe them is that they help form a an oil slick over our skin. Mm-hmm. All right, so they're pr- providing a barrier on top of our natural skin barrier that will then help prevent the chemicals that we're exposing our skin cells to from really uh, penetrating through. So these hand creams shouldn't be heavily fragranced. They should be yeah. nice and minimalist in terms of their formulation. Um, you know, gone are the days of people going out and buying those really smelly hand creams that just make, you know, smell like potpourri and those sorts yep. of things. They're just not necessary. And in, in truth, they probably trigger skin allergy. Mm-hmm. So I'm much bigger fan of the very simple hand creams that don't have to cost, you know, a fortune. Yeah. And you can purchase them at basic pharmacies and, and just it, the most important thing is that you use it regularly, not just once a day or twice a day, but really every time you wash your hands. Mm-hmm. Something that so many of us are doing in the winter is taking these long, hot showers, which are the best thing ever. But (laughs) what is hot, hot water doing to our skin? And is there, I guess, an ideal temperature for cleansing and washing our skin? Yeah, great question. And it's so true because, you know, we wake up, the mornings are so cold, we wake up and we're already cold. Mm -hmm. Then the first thing people like to do is to jump into a a scalding hot shower to almost rejuvenate, wake them up and and just basically get warm again. The problem is, is that hot water is actually very drying to our skin. Mm -hmm. And the theory behind that is that when we overheat our, our skin, so our epidermis and our dermis, we actually will give rise to more water evaporation over the next half an hour to an hour, even up to two hours. So if you think about it, the reason we sweat is to cool our body down, yeah. right? So it's a, it's a thermoregulatory um, mechanism. If we increase our body temperature through hot water, all we're going to do is sweat more. So we'll actually lose more water from our skin and that will therefore dry us out, something shocking. And then unfortunately we're setting it up because we often shower in the morning or most people do and then we'll set up the rest of the day to just evaporate more water off. So in terms of ideal temperatures, and a lot of people will want to you know, kick me for this, but we're really looking at lukewarm water as being the ideal temperature. And lukewarm is defined as somewhere between 36 degrees and 42 degrees Celsius. Okay. okay? So that's that kind of the ideal temperature for water. If we think about it, the way that should feel is that you, when you run the water over your skin, it should still feel warm without feeling too hot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, particularly anyone who's had children and have had to warm up babies' bottles, will know that they test it on their skin to yeah. make sure it doesn't burn the baby. That's about the temperature that we're looking at. So just this kind of a warm to, to lukewarm uh, temperature without being overly hot. We can do that. That's doable. Yeah. Is it true that the best time to apply a body moisturiser is immediately after our shower? Absolutely. That's my all-time favourite time of the day to Mm moisturise for a few reasons. One, just practically, it's the time that we have our clothes off, so it's the easiest time to apply the creams. Of course. But the reason that it works so well is it just does trap in some water molecules that are sitting on our skin surface uh, or higher up in the epidermis. So what I say to people is when you hop out of the shower, pat yourself dry, but don't over dry your skin. Let it remain a little bit damp, right? So not damp, so damp that you're going to clearly, you know, wet your clothes, but you're going to just leave a little bit of moisture on there and that's the best time to, to trap in that moisture. It works a treat and it's actually absorbed much better by the skin. Oh, we're all going to start doing that now. 
I received a lot of questions from listeners who were concerned that their products and ingredients, namely hyaluronic acid, that was the one that came up the most, aren't actually being absorbed into the skin. I had one listener ask about the actual form of hyaluronic acid because she'd read that it only works in serum form, in inverted commas, Mm -hmm. rather than creams and lotions. So how can we ensure that we are using the correct form of hyaluronic acid? Well, you're absolutely right. And your, your listener or your readers also completely switched on. They're and, very clever. Oh, they're clearly doing a lot <laughs> of their own research. And I really love to hear that because there is so many myths and so many mm. um, real untruths told by the skincare industry, basically all aiming to get more money, right? So it's yep. all about selling product. That's what they want to do. So we know that hyaluronic acid is a natural molecule found in the skin, right? We know Mm -hmm. that that's in the epidermis and in the dermis in particular. And what it does, it works like a sponge. So it draws and holds water molecules to it Mm -hmm. to plump up the skin and hydrate. The problem is that it's a really large molecule. So it cannot penetrate the skin or the epidermal layer as a lot of skincare companies will have you believe. The way that the formulation that actually has been proven to help penetrate the skin is actually the salt form of hyaluronic acid, which is known as sodium hyaluronate. So it literally, in a a laboratory setting, looks like a crystal, um, a little like salt does, right? So they're salt crystals. Mm -hmm. Um, In the same same way, it's only when hyaluronic acid is in the form of this salt that it can actually penetrate. It's small enough to penetrate through the skin. It actually undergoes a chemical reaction within the skin to turn into um, hyaluronic acid. So it's not so much as to whether it's in a serum or a lotion or a cream. That's not quite correct in terms Mm -hmm. of the base. It's in terms of the actual formulation. Now, many skincare brands will not label uh, it accurately. So you actually might need to delve a little bit more deeply, uh, either by emailing the company to say actually what form of hyaluronic acid is contained in your product. And if the label simply says hyaluronic acid by itself, for example, like a, a hydrating booster cream cleanser or cream itself you can assume that it probably doesn't penetrate through the skin and it's just going to sit on the outer layers of the skin so it leads to a very temporary plumping effect so these products that contain straight hyaluronic acid will make the skin look more hydrated Mm -hmm. for a matter of seconds to minutes right because all that's happening is it sits on the top of the skin and then the water evaporates off so it it, it literally isn't giving any long-lasting hydration to the deeper levels of the skin I mean, we could do a whole hour on cosmetic labelling, really. Absolutely. (laughs) It's a whole conversation there. I've had another listener ask, I've heard about products just sitting on the surface of the skin and not really absorbing or doing anything. Is there a way of knowing that your products have been absorbed into the skin or a rule of thumb on how long we need to wait between steps? Yeah, really good question. It's sort of almost identical to what we we were just discussing a moment ago. It's true. So when you look at a label, one of the first ingredients that's listed uh, is water, Mm -hmm. all right? So water itself, the vast majority of the component of a cream will actually is meant to evaporate off the skin normally. So that's true. What's meant to be left behind are the so-called active ingredients. So whether that's a bit of niacinamide, whether it's a retinol, a, a vitamin C serum, or mm-hmm. you know, any any other active ingredient will, will be left to penetrate through. There's no real way of knowing how much of that is penetrating through the, the skin's surface. Sure. So then it comes down to, well, what percentage is the company using? And this is the million-dollar question <laughs> because they'll never actually tell you what is the active ingredient percentage 
that is penetrating through the skin. And it's a, it's where one skincare company versus another, it makes it really hard to know yeah. which is which ones are being honest and which ones uh, have, I guess, evidence behind what they're saying. And this is why a lot of dermatologists won't recommend a specific active ingredient or a specific uh, moisturiser or serum over another because there's no evidence mm. to, to do that. So... My advice is to is to to use a product that you are familiar with that you know doesn't irritate the skin, doesn't contain three or six different active ingredients, you know smell very fragranced, and then wait no more than thirty seconds to a minute to apply a moisturizer on top of it because there should be no reason why applying a good moisturizer on top of your your active ingredient reduces its efficacy. If it's going to work, it's going to work. And putting some moisturiser on top certainly shouldn't um, reduce how effective it is. Perfect. What about, I mean, this is that's kind of like your morning routine, for example. What about overnight hydration? I had a lot of people write in asking about night creams and they were saying that on waking, they feel as though their evening skincare routine hasn't actually provided any hydration at all. Is there a benefit to applying a hyaluronic acid serum to the skin before a moisturiser at night? I think so. I think what it will do is add just that little bit touch more longer lasting hydration, which Mm -hmm. is what I think your readers uh, and listeners are asking about. So yeah, it's absolutely true. When we talk about an evening um, regimen, we're talking about actives, right? We're talking about alpha hydroxy acids, beta hydroxy acids, retinols, retinoids, uh, perhaps some vitamin C or niacinamide. None of those products are designed to be hydrating. Yeah. They're designed to do various different things. So they might be anti-inflammatory. They might stimulate some collagen synthesis. They might help reduce tyrosinase or um, inhibit pigmentation. But none of them in and of themselves will be hydrating. That's where I tend to say I like a night cream. I like a good moisturizer on top Mm -hmm. because it will trap in moisture. It will reduce uh, sensitivity of the skin because we know right. that some of these actives will be slightly irritating and slightly dry, drying to the skin. So I think if people are particularly prone to dry skin, a, a hyaluronic acid-based um, serum or lotion or cream will be of assistance to them as long as it contains sodium hyaluronate. So no, mm. not the not the big HA molecule that they think uh, is going to penetrate the skin. I think as well, it's and I certainly used to do it, it's easy to confuse texture with actual hydration i would wake up in the morning and be like oh my skin doesn't have any of that tackiness that it did when i applied my night cream it mustn't have worked but no well that's right so what you're describing there is how they how skincare companies will put in a few different uh, ingredients that actually sit on the skin giving a smoother sensation so dimethicone i think is what specifically even you're you're referring to so dimethicone is an ingredient that kind of gives a a silkiness or a um yeah just that slight tackiness to the skin because again it's a large molecule it doesn't penetrate through so a moisturizer doesn't have to feel mm. like it's leaving the skin um, with an extra layer, perhaps. Yeah. That's, maybe that's the way to describe it because where we really want the hydration to be is deeper down in the skin anyway or all that um, thick sort of more the when, when products contain a lot of uh, liquid paraffin and white soft paraffin, it sits on the top of the skin as that oil slick sensation, as I mentioned mm. earlier, which is part of a good moisturiser but not the whole story. It's definitely a trap that I've fallen into. Yeah, in the past. I think we all do because that's yeah, as you say, it's texture, and we kind of think that that equals hydration, mm. but it doesn't quite. Yeah. yeah, something that popped up a lot, almost overwhelmingly so, um, as readers and listeners were submitting their questions, was skin that is both dry 
and acneic. I mm. think this can be so confusing for so many people because your first instinct with acne is I'm going to dry all of this out. Yep. But then if you already have dry skin, probably not your best bet. So how do we balance it? It's a really good question and one that is almost in and of itself contradictory, isn't it? Mm. Because you think, well, I've got oily skin in some parts and dry skin in the others. It's that classic combination skin. Yeah. What does that actually mean? So it combination skin to me reflects a differential between the oil glands that are overactive usually in the T-zone, but not always, usually in the T-zone, and drier outside. So that around the forehead or maybe in front of the ears and around the, uh, just the inferior aspects of our nose. My approach personally is to ensure that patients with combination skin or even acneic skin are using a lightweight non-comedogenic and minimalist formula moisturizer. I think that is actually very important. Mm -hmm. Why? Because even in acne and acne rosacea in particular, we know that the skin barrier is defective. Right. So if we've got a defective skin barrier that's not holding in moisturizer, or moisture, sorry, it will actually aggravate the underlying problem. So people with rosacea, for example, who get pimples and spots and they think that that look like acne, part of their daily regimen is a very good moisturiser. So it's not that the patients with combination or acne-prone skin shouldn't moisturise, it's that they shouldn't be using the very occlusive moisturisers that contain a lot of liquid paraffin or white soft paraffin or, or even dimethicone. So it's about having a lightweight hydrating moisturiser. So it's, again, ceramide-based and with even having a small amount of hyaluronic acid would be very good. Mm-hmm. Add in that a little bit of niacinamide and then they're turning their moisturiser into a, a moisturising anti-inflammatory agent as well. So I always love that. So I definitely get my acne patients to moisturise. They're almost always on some form of drying active anyway. So they're always they're often using retinols or retinoids. Sure. They may be using medic, uh, medical strength retinoids or on prescription or even orotane or isotretinoin. And these patients need to have a good moisturiser for sure. One listener has written in to ask about acne and she was saying that she's getting persistent pimples, but the pimples themselves feel really dry and crusty and then they hang around for months. What treatment options would she have? So it sounds like this patient has what I'd call papulopustular acne. And the question is, do they have straight papulopustular? postular uh, common acne, which is called acne vulgaris, which is what everyone thinks of as teenage acne or hormonal acne, or does she have acne rosacea? Because in both Mm. types, you can have a deeper type of acne uh, pimple, which is essentially inflammation around an oil gland. The reason they're getting the scale is that this is all happening a little bit deeper in the skin. So the oil glands sit quite deep, they get inflamed as they push up on the skin, the very outer layers of the skin forms these little scabs almost. And if you pick off the scabs, you don't actually get pus out of them because the oil glands are inflamed deeper down. So this sort of patient, in my opinion, probably needs what I'd call a systemic therapy, meaning an oral medication. So I'd be encouraging her to seek assistance from her GP or a dermatologist to get a medicated product that uh, will work because a lot of the topical things that she might have tried a lot of the -the over-the-counter stuff uh, it's just not going to penetrate deep enough to need to go where it needs to so you know products like um, isotretinoin may be may be uh, important for her but Mm -hmm. of course everything needs to be tailored to the patient perfect segue because i had so many questions about roaccutane and everything in that kind of family so many people have come off that and then have the driest skin they've ever had yeah. in their life. How do they resolve it? So it's a really good question and it is true because the way that 
isotretinoin, so that's the active drug. So it's got a few different brand names, Roaccutane, Accutane, Orotane. The way that it works is to reprogram oil glands at a genetic level. Mm -hmm. So what it is actually doing is altering the DNA of these oil glands to become less active and to shrink them down. The theory is that it should actually work mostly while you're on the medication, but the medication actually builds up in the skin and then slowly releases over months to years. For patients who are left with persistently dry skin post isotretinoin, I generally just recommend a very good ceramide-based moisturiser for them to use twice a day. Unfortunately or fortunately, they will never necessarily have their pre-existing oily skin. And I use the word fortunately mm-hmm. because that's what led to their acne to begin with. Of course. So it is a little bit of a catch-22 because these patients come you know, with horrible acne, and persistent in their 20s and in their 30s. It's not a teenage problem, we know that. Yep. And I say to them, look, if you are left with dry skin after this treatment course, we have to just know how to manage it and it all comes down to the best using the best products. Mm-hmm. Another frequently asked question was on exfoliation. So yep. I would love to spend a bit of time on that. Firstly, what are, I mean, it's a broad one, but what are the safest and most effective ways to exfoliate dry and eczema-prone skin? Yeah, very good question because it's almost, again, a little bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? It's like you want to exfoliate, but doesn't that just dry the skin out more? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes, it can. So the idea... I I suggest to patients to have gentle exfoliating cleansers in the shower. So that can include uh, a small amount of salicylic acid, uh, a small amount of alpha hydroxy acid, say anywhere between 2 and 6% alpha hydroxy acids Mm -hmm. in the showers. There are a few different brands that will do cleansers that contain these two active ingredients. So AHAs and BHAs are, in my opinion, the most effective active ingredient to to exfoliate and the idea is that you would do it in the shower with a nice gentle loofah or one of those microbead gloves so in the shower gently exfoliating the dead layer of skin i always advise against over scrubbing and over irritating the skin because after the shower you are going to have to use a moisturizer so that's a two-step process yeah, that was going to be my next question. How important is it to moisturise straight after exfoliating? Yeah, very important because it, particularly with the dry skin, right? So if you if you simply use these potentially harsh chemicals on the skin, all it's going to do is degrade the skin barrier, mm. which will then aggravate dry skin. And what does the dry skin do? It actually creates more dead skin cells. So you, you end up having this vicious cycle of actually just drying already dry skin out even further so it's a two-step process gently cleansing in the shower with a yeah, salicylic acid or alpha hydroxy acid based cleanser mm-hmm. with a loofah or with a gentle uh, scrub and then moisturizing the skin afterwards and i wouldn't do it every day okay I, I, I would say to patients perhaps only aim to exfoliate once to twice per week mm-hmm. depending on how much their skin needs it and i think people tend to over scrub and over exfoliate and that actually causes skin issues right would i be right in saying that when we are moisturizing afterwards we should be sticking with our fragrance free really minimalist formula definitely so if you can really smell a product you know from the end of the room it's got way too much fragrance in fact yeah i don't really see much of a role for fragrance in a good moisturizer other than to conceal some of the the active ingredients in the moisturiser that perhaps don't smell particularly mm. good. So it just should smell neutral. It shouldn't be fragrance, if that, if that makes sense. It does. A, a lot of fragrances are unnecessary, will trigger skin allergy. So I always harp back on minimalist formula, 
ceramide based and and a product that shouldn't doesn't cost the the earth mm-hmm. so a gentle exfoliant i had heaps of questions about acids yeah. and how strong they can go but just keep it yeah, gentle def- definitely over winter when the skin's drier mm. I, I don't want people over exfoliating their they will just they'll be really they'll pay for it basically yeah. I think that the skin will really uh, revolt and they'll notice that they actually cause patchiness uh, itchiness sensitivity and potentially even trigger problems like acne where they didn't necessarily have it because of this over exfoliating problem winter another listener asked do I need to ditch retinol in the winter if I have dry skin good question I don't think you need to ditch it altogether, yeah. but I would be perhaps more conservative in my, my usage of the, the stronger or more irritating products. So one option would be to reduce it to what I'd call a, a low-grade maintenance regimen, perhaps Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays only, but again, using a moisturiser on top of the retinol or the retinoid every night. So I think if people have a good moisturiser, they won't need to ditch their actives. Um, I think the problem is that a lot of people don't know what to use and which moisturiser is best, and they'll often choose the moisturiser that, that has been sold along with the, the retinol, right? So these yeah. are this is the cosmeceutical industry. They don't just have your, your retinol. They've got your retinol, they've got your B3, your B5, mm-hmm. your moisturiser, and they sell it to you as a package. Yeah. So, you know, $500 later, you've got, you know, six different products or maybe even only three different products and you're having to use their products that they've sold to you as a package and that's what you think you should be doing. But actually, no, I definitely pick and choose products from various lines depending on the evidence behind it and what actually I think works properly. So I, I don't, my advice is don't you, you should still use your retinol if your skin can tolerate it, but have a good moisturiser to go on top. Perfect. I had a few listeners write in asking about how to treat dryness on quite specific areas of the face. And one that came up quite a lot was the eyelids. How should we go about treating dryness on our eyelids? Very good question. So the first thing to say is that there are a lot of ranges that will, will sell sort of eye creams specifically. I'm yet to see a, an eye cream that gen, uh, genuinely makes a huge difference mm-hmm. and, and I think there is a lot of fancy marketing in that. I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that. But basically, to me, the same principles apply for eyelids as they would the forehead, the nose, the, the lateral cheeks, which is you want a basic fragrance-free moisturiser. I like it to be slightly thicker for the eyelids to give them the extra sort of, I guess, boost, mm-hmm. uh, that slightly higher percentage of shea butter or, or white soft paraffin, liquid paraffin, so that it's not just uh, water evaporating off the eyelids immediately. Yeah. The eyelids are the thinnest part of skin on our face. Uh, they're going to be the, the site that react first to irritants, to fragrances, uh, to, to active ingredients that come too close to the eye. So I don't necessarily choose a separate eye cream um, for for basic moisturising. I think if you've got a good uh, cream that you've got for the face, it should be able to be used on the eyelids without causing issues. Mm -hmm. There were also quite a few questions about redness and dryness around the nose. Is that connected to the skin barrier? Should we be treating it differently? Yeah, very good question. So this is something I see anywhere between three to five day times a day uh, in my clinical career. And what these patients are actually referring to is a condition called periorofacial dermatitis, POD. So POD is a really well-established phenomenon whereby patients will get redness 
irritation, dryness, and maybe even small bumps, what we call papules, around mm-hmm. the nose, uh, particularly in that crease. Yeah. It can also occur around the mouth mm-hmm. and around mm. the eyes. So around the crease of the nose is a really specific site that will irritate patients. And I believe that it can be due to a combination of things. So no one really uh, understands it fully. We know that there are a few things that aggravate it. One is a disrupted skin barrier, as you just said. The second is an overgrowth of a particular bacterium called Fusibacterium. We also think that harsh chemicals, sunscreens uh, and, and actives will trigger this. So sure. I've seen POD being triggered by retinols and by triggered by retinoids that even I've prescribed. So we have to be very careful with that site because it's clearly a very sensitive site. Mm. And because it is a little crevice, it um, accumulates chemicals more, say, consistently and more easily than other parts of the face. So, yeah, it is a very tricky site and often needs medicated therapy to, to improve it. Mm-hmm. How important is cleansing? I didn't get heaps of questions about cleansing, which makes me want to talk about it because <laughs> I feel like with dry skin, everyone goes immediately to their moisturisers. But yes. I assume the cleanser plays a role as well. We've got hydrating cleansers. We've got purifying cleansers. Yes. How do we choose the best one for our skin type? That's a really good question. And I think um, it does come down to skin type. So patients who have uh, oily or combination skin may be able to afford using a slightly more what's so-called purifying cleanser. So let's just delve into that a little bit more. Mm. What is a purifying cleanser? In my mind, a purifying cleanser is one that contains artificial surfactants. So these are chemicals that help remove dirt, grime, oil from the skin Mm -hmm. uh, and and a slightly keratolytic, so slightly break down excessive uh, skin around hair follicles. These products will not suit everyone. So a a gentle cleanser uh, that is slightly foaming and um, still slightly keratolytic may be appropriate for patients who have more oily skin types, but will be completely inappropriate for patients who have dry skin or sensitive skin. Right. So thinking about those two groups of patients, I generally would use a cream-based cleanser. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, completely fragrance-free. And the point that you raised earlier is that we always focus on the moisturising cream is very true, but the cleanser itself can be hydrating if it contains ceramides. So that's be one way of optimising the hydration level of the cleanser. Uh, And the other active that I like is is niacinamide. So if that's contained within a cleanser, you have a couple of uh, already good actives that will rehydrate the skin. And then you're obviously following that up with your good moisturiser. So you're spot on. It's not just the moisturiser that you pay attention to. We love those ceramides. I was going to ask why ceramides are so important, but they're the building blocks. They are. So we we know that they are naturally made by our skin, right? Mm -hmm. So they're they're found in about uh, 50 to 60% of the epidermal layer within within the cement that holds our skin cells together. So the reason I'm such a big advocate for them is because they've got a really good research and evidence base behind mm. them, okay? They're not just products that some company has made up. And you'll, you will have seen this, Gemma. There are yep. literally ingredients that are registered trademarks of cosmetic companies. Mm-hmm. Why? And that's because they've just made them up. Yeah. They've made them up and they do these little Mickey Mouse studies to show that uh, they they work. And and it's like the one of my colleagues in London described it really well. It's like if you do run a um, a baking competition, mm-hmm. you bake a cake, but you're not only, you're both the tester and the judge of that cake. Yep. 
Of course. Spot on. Yeah, it's that, that's what these companies do. It's like, well, yeah, if, if I invented a product and I wanted to sell it, I would then make my own study, I'd be the judge of that study and I'd, and I'd flog it to you. 100% of consumers have said this is the best product they've ever <laughs> exactly. used. Okay, well, you've asked your mum and your dad <laughs> and two people that you work That's with. That's exactly right. So I like ceramides because they are evidence-based. Mm. They are a real in- ingredient. They're, they're naturally formed and we know that they are a very important part of the, the skin barrier. So... That's why I harp on about them. They're the best. A few listeners have asked about stubborn, flaky skin around the hairline. Now, this is something that we did kind of touch on last time, but again, being winter, worth revisiting. Definitely. So I think that these patients are developing what we call seborrheic dermatitis, which is a really common skin problem uh, that results in dandruff, Mm -hmm. uh, an itchy, dry, flaky scalp. And... This is something that we see not only in the anterior hairline, but also in the eyebrows and even coming down the sides of our cheeks besides our nose. Yeah. Sebderm should be treated like any medical condition. So with the medicated shampoo, and I generally recommend a ketoconazole, which is an antifungal shampoo, Mm -hmm. uh, and also a really nice gentle moisturizing shampoo as well. So again, this is when using something that has got a bit of research behind it, uh, that's not overly expensive and overly drying to the scalp is really important but often these patients will need some sort of medicated therapy whether that's a topical lotion that i might uh, ask them to rub in say two or three times a week or or even a good moisturizer um, that will remove some of the scale but that's what it is so it's seborrheic dermatitis if you google it you'll see pictures of people with dry flaky scalps and uh, they need some good therapy mm-hmm one listener has asked is it true that gut health can play a part with dry skin Yeah, this is a really good question and one that I think is the subject of a lot of growing research. So I attended a conference uh, in Seoul, Korea. This is late last year, so well before. When we were allowed to travel. (laughs) Yeah, it was literally my last overseas trip and it was just a fly-in, fly-out visit. But it was a really fascinating one that sort of was trying to link uh, the gut microbiome, so all the bacteria that live Mm -hmm. in the gut, with the bacteria that live in the skin. And we do think there's a relationship between the two. We just don't know exactly how to manipulate it yet. So I think this... This is a a growing area of research. And I think that we know this concept of the leaky gut and similarly with people who have a skin barrier deficit, their bacterial colonies on their skin are also abnormal. So I often am now starting to promote moisturizers that do have prebiotics in them as well for this this reason, because I think there is growing evidence that uh, trying to respect the skin's microbiome uh, is something we can do externally because we don't quite yet know how to manipulate our gut microbiome, but we do know that there is a link. I think it's just you know a bit of a watch this space. Mm. While we're on internal factors, does drinking water actually help our skin? Yeah, very good question. So I think the answer is both yes and no. And what, yep. does it, what do I mean by that? Because I think that the, probably the biggest myth or misconception is that if you drink lots of water, you are going to rehydrate your skin. Now, let's just unpack that a little bit. Mm -hmm. The body is a very intelligent um, system, right? A very complex system. And we've got this thing called homeostasis, which means that if if our skin is particularly dehydrated, our our body will try to shift fluid into the skin uh, to try to normalize it. And that's just what it does. So if someone is adequately hydrated, their skin will be, you can't um, maximize that hydration anymore. The problem really 
lies in the fact that we generally walk around very dehydrated, right? Sure. So everyone, every Australian, every Melbourneian at this moment, I'd estimate perhaps 90% of people, maybe more, are walking around dehydrated. Mm-hmm. So if we are underhydrated, then by normalising hydration levels by drinking water, we will ensure that all body organs, organs, whether it's our brain, our liver, our kidneys or our skin, have the optimal amount of water in it. But if we're already well hydrated, then chugging back litres upon litres upon litres of water won't actually help our skin anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about uh, making sure just for our general health that we stay hydrated, not that it's actually going to boost hydration anymore in our skin. I think that's one of the biggest when they um when they interview supermodels. What are your secrets to good skin? Oh, I drink heaps of water. <laughs> okay, exactly. Great. Now, now the truth is that in winter we are going to be even more dehydrated, right? Mm. So we, you know we're we're constantly evaporating more water off our skin because it's drier and we've got we've got heaters on. But uh, let's say that we were already adequately hydrated, then drinking more two, four, six liters of water a day is not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. A question I received that I loved and I think would be a really nice note to wrap up on. Are there any absolute non-negotiable must-have ingredients for dry skin? Yes. So I think... I think my number one, two, and three, which if it isn't already obvious. <laughs> I <I'll> wonder <laughs> what they will be. Absolutely, yeah. So ceramides have to be a part of a, a good moisturising cream. Mm-hmm. I think... The other, if I can frame it slightly differently, it's like, what do I not want in moisturisers? I think that is the fragrances. I don't want any of those. We know that they're irritating to the skin and they're doing nothing other than, you know, breaking your bank balance. So I think moisturisers that contain ceramides, ideally some sodium hyaluronate would be Mm -hmm. ideal. And if we can sneak a little bit of niacinamide in there as well, we do know that vitamin B3, again, has growing evidence. I'm not here to say that it's got, you know, a heap of research behind it, but it is growing and I do believe in it. So I think those three ingredients are probably what I'd recommend. That was specialist dermatologist Dr Ryan DeCruz, who you can find at Malvern Dermatology, Caulfield Dermatology and Bayside Dermatology. You can discover more about CeraVe's dermatologist-developed skincare at ceraVe.com.au or on Instagram at ceraVe underscore AU. And if you're in store, look out for the brand's new SA smoothing range to address rough, bumpy skin. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.